and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and other works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, today's guest is a repeater, and I could not be more delighted to have her back. For over two decades, she has worked as a writer, producer, researcher, story, and writing consultant for Universal Studios, HBO Max, Lionsgate, and 20th Century Fox, as well as Ed Sullivan Productions. She has contributed to the feature film No Sudden Move, the HBO miniseries Mosaic, and is the story editor of the just-released HBO Max Steve Sodenberg series Full Circle. Folks, I give you guys the great Laura Shapiro. Laura, thank you so much for dropping by again this evening. Well, I'm happy to be here. It's going to be a fun conversation. Absolutely. Well, as you guys uh, might have guessed, uh, we have got an unbelievable show in store for y'all. We're using Laura's most recent project, the aforementioned HBO Max's Full Circle, as a launching point for an epic discussion of Guyanan magic and intrigues. The show deals heavily with the nation and its magical traditions, most notably Obia. While not as well known as other Caribbean traditions such as Vudan and Santeria, Obia is no less intriguing. And it has a special relationship with the most mysterious of nations, Guyana. Columbus avoided it when he sailed the ocean blue. It drove Sir Walter Riley mad. It may have contributed to Jim Jones's frayed mental state as well. Probably goes without saying, but the CIA has a long-standing and special relationship with the nation, and so too does Salem, Massachusetts, going all the way back to the witch scares. Yeah, we're going to cover a lot of ground with this one. So on that note, let us start the show.
Okay, Laura, so to start off with, what was the genesis of this project? Well, the combination of things, it actually was very idiosyncratic. I was working with Ed Solomon on another project. We've worked together for a couple of decades on and off and more on in the last 10 years or so. And he was asked to view the Kurosawa film, High and Low. And that is, which is based on a novel by Ed McBain, who's really Evan Wilson, by the way. Ed McBain is not his real name, it's a pseudonym. Um, that is, uh, that's a New York City based cop story. So, in a, and so full circle from Manhattan, where Ed lives and full circle takes place to the initial inspiration being Japan, all the way back to the inspiration of that being Manhattan. And the inciting incident of that story, whether it be King's Ransom, which is the Ed McBain book, or High and Low, which is the Kurosawa film that was a, a kind of a loose adaptation of it, is the concept is the concept that of of a bot kidnapping. A kidnapping where they kidnap the wrong person and then what do you do? Do you pay the ransom? Do you abandon this stranger to possibly death? What kind of human being are you? It's an ethical choice. And that, and then everything after that is um, different from those sources and original. So it's just that, that particular concept. Um, what became more interesting is as we developed it in terms of what we're talking about here, it's... It, it was it, it was um, that morality play and then the question of, okay, what happens? Why did they kidnap? What is the reason? And who are the people who are doing the kidnapping? Those two questions, right? And who, who are the people um, is about who was really a kind of a sociological question. In other words... Who this is? Who who is? Who are the organ the organized crime? The immigrant groups who are doing organized crime in New York now. Back when Evan Hunter was writing, when Kurosawa was making that film, it was the mafia. You might have, and even earlier, it was Irish gangs. It was Jewish gangs, right? Um, all the famous gangsters of the 20th century. All of those are immigrant groups who come here, and before they get a footing in um, regular society, they have to work their way up from that. They're working their way out of exploitation, out of the ghetto, and that's a, it's a natural progression through a period of organized crime. The people who were doing that, who were current day, according to some of Ed's law enforcement contacts, the most interesting group of people to us were, were the Guyanese. And everything kind of flowed from that because Guyana is such a fascinating place. And then the other thing that the other big question is the curse, which is it's not a kidnapping in this story. Not really. 
uh, uh, virtually all the reviewers say that Full Circle is a crime story about a botched kidnapping and the cascading effect of everything that is revealed with all the through all to all, uh, all the people that it touches. And it is that, but it's not a kidnapping. It's a large scale death magic ritual done in one of the most iconic public gathering places in New York City. In in public. The kidnapping isn't the point. The ransom isn't the point. The magic is the point. The lifting of the curse is the point. And so in many ways, this is a supernatural story, if you want to see it that way. Now, and, yes, I, go ahead. I, I know in the Sync community, um, Ed Solomon has a huge following uh, because of the Bill and Ted movies and a few of the other ones, but... Um, mm-hmm. I know you had made it, uh, you had mentioned to me before that he has quite a secular view, which I find that... He does. I w- yeah. I mean, Ed is sort of your basic secular humanist in his point of view about things. He's not knowledgeable or really interested in magic or ritual. He turns to me for that. That's part of why, uh, part of the expertise that I bring to the table in in our work together. And, um, but... It, it it's often it, it, so it's it's interesting to work with him on that because it forces me to have to explain all the ideas about how magic works, what magic is, what is a curse. Having conversations about well, what is a curse, and our curse is real. Is magic real? And I would say that almost instinctively. It's like he got it on a level where what often happens, and you can look at any big magical ritual that we know about, the fallout from things like that is often not what people expect. And it has kind of a cascading effect throughout people's lives, in in the lives of everyone it touches. It's not that easy to control the power that is raised and you and it may not do what you think it's going to do and that's exactly what happens in this story Uh, what they're trying to do is lift a curse that that is the purpose of the kidnapping a curse was put was 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 put on the family of of Savitri Mahabir, who is the leader of the Guyanese community in our story, and it was put on her family decades earlier, and bad things are still happening, and she has finally decided that the only way to change that is to ha- is to lift the curse. And she goes back to Guyana, and she finds someone to help her, and she comes back, and she implements a magical ritual. And that happens in the first episode, so not big spoilers. Now, one thing I was hoping you could maybe get into real quick before we get into some of the um, various magical traditions that show up in this was the... um, 
the structure that you guys used with the characters i know that uh, when we had talked about this before it was really fascinating to me because it's kind of uh, like the structure of a robert altman film with really like a sprawling uh million mm -hmm. characters all around mm -hmm. and i found that to be just such a, a fascinating creative choice for this story well well that's very much ed i mean that was what he set out to write um and and the idea being that it's a you know that that the reverberations of this you you have three we have you have three different groups you have the guyanese immigrants you have the white rich white americans and you have the police and we see the police very much as humans as opposed to the sort of police it's not a procedural right um we we understand we we are with them as people more than we are with them necessarily as cops so it's um it's really three different cultures coming together in a way and being brought in to this and everyone's life is changed Every, who touches this so the circle is a universal symbol, a concept uh, that pretty much appears throughout the world. So what are some of the common mystical traditions connected in it? What's its importance to magical rituals? And why is it that the circle is such a universal symbol? Well, you know, it's interesting um, the way we got to the circle, which is really the way we got to the curse, the concept of a curse, by the way, is that... Um, Part of what Ed was doing with this was also doing a New York film, New York television show. The, the character of the city, the, the, it, the locations everywhere, all over the city. And he wanted to use Washington Square Park, which has this big circular fountain in it, right? And it was within talking about that and how we could use that. In other words, there was always this idea of having the, the kidnapping come there, end up there. And I said, you know, a circle is a universal symbol of in every culture. Um, it's it's a and it's a ritual. Maybe this is a ritual. Maybe that's what's going on. And that's actually how that whole concept came into it. The geography was all already there. The symbolism in real life was already there. Circle circles are we're drawn to circles, right? Circles are protective. If you're inside of a circle in a magical ritual, one of the things that it's doing is protecting you. Or it's keeping something in. So we've all seen in every occult television show the, the circle around the demon, right? Um, it, and, and you can't break the circle, but if you break the circle, it's, uh, it can get out and, and um, do dastardly things. It also, a circle, so you can be protected within it or you can be imprisoned within it, right? You can keep other people out or you can keep something in. And if the thing that you keep in, 
you can also it also can enhance powers, right? It can uh, you that you do the ritual inside the circle because it makes the ritual stronger. It doesn't just protect the ritual; it enhances it. So, all cultures use that in one way or another. Particularly in we're t- we are we're not talking about high ritual magic. We're talking about the magic of the people. We're talking about everyday magic. And, and the symbols and the items and the ideas that are, um, that, that, that flow across cultures. Because I think it's human nature. It might even be more than human nature. You know how there's pictures on the internet of cats sitting in circles? I tested it. My cat, if I make a circle on the floor, my cats will sit on it. They see something. They're drawn to it, as are we. Um, so, we, you know, Native Americans would, it's also pragmatic, right? Native Americans of various tribes would pitch their camps in a circle because, because it's safer in terms of, sleep, uh, it, in, in terms of being on the, on the land and sleeping at night and being in danger because you're not quite on this earth and it it creates protections, but it also creates a physical barrier that is useful um, in a purely pragmatic way. You have um, Stonehenge, right? The yin-yang symbol. Um, You know, the cycles of the moon, the tides, the, um, the moon and the sun, the only astral bodies that we could see without... Um, without technology. Um, there's a perfection to it that I think we're very drawn to, that mathematical perfection. Um, so, you know, in magical rituals, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's protection, it's amplification, it's also purification, which gets, which uh, to my mind kind of connects to the idea of, it's, a, it's like a platonic ideal. Right, it's per it's perfect in a very simple way, and it occurs that perfection occurs in nature. I mean, Carl Jung said it was one of the great primordial images of mankind. Plato said the soul is a circle. I find it really it's... fascinating on a, a synchronistic level to the uh, mm-hmm. how there was kind of the initial inspiration from Washington Park. I'm assuming that that yeah. would be named after the uh, first president who uh, was quite taken uh, with the Native American mounds. He excavated mm-hmm. them and the uh, group that he headed for many years, the Society of Cincinnati, was actually the first organization in the country to try to preserve uh, the Native American mounds. And they were especially taken with the uh, ones made by the Adena and the Hopewell. And um, Mm -hmm. these are just Mm -hmm. littered with magic circles. Uh, In fact, it was actually quite uh, common from what I've seen going to these sites that they had uh, magic circles kind of around the mounds themselves because it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a protecting them. Well, yes. Yeah, for protection. Well, they had this sort of concept of the two souls, right? So, like, you had the mm-hmm. higher soul that returned to kind of the Milky Way upon death, but then you had the lower soul, which could kind of become like a hungry ghost or something like that, that was earthbound. 
So part yes. of the reason why yes. they, like, the circles around there was to keep, you know, these lower souls confined into these sacred spaces. Oh. Well, and, and, and interestingly, in, in Guyanese um, uh, culture, one of the aspects that they deal with, which we didn't deal with in this this story, um, they they uh, they call them jumpies, and they're basically, you know, um, demons or dead souls that didn't make it to where their destination. Very much the kind of thing you're talking about. Interesting. Yeah, no, I just, I find that fascinating from a synchronistic level that that would be what inspired mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Solomon. And then also to mm -hmm. the uh, the use of the baseball chalk uh, for the... Right. Well, that, that, get, that gets into um, part of my philosophy about, or I wouldn't even say philosophy, observations of, would be a better, a better way of... of how this kind of magic grows and changes as the culture grows and changes, as the culture modernizes. We think of magic as high ritual, where things are prescribed, but it, and you do things in exactly that way. But the, the everyday magic that people practice when it's never been removed from the culture, when it has grown with the culture as opposed to um, our truncated European-based culture where it we were shut off from it and then had to get it back. And by the time we got it back, we had been conditioned by um, conventional religion to expect high ritual. As opposed to you take what's in the cupboard and you use it to create your ritual. It's not... You don't have to have the exact right thing. You work with what you have. And because you're not a priest in the Catholic Church, you're, you're a person in um, a rural community somewhere with, with, with the resources that you have and the direct connection to that realm. No intermediary. And so it, that that and and if and, and so of course you would use whatever tool is at hand in whatever someone might have used in um in the in the jungles in Guyana to make a circle um is is if, if there's a better machine why not use it hence the baseball lining machine The, um, you know, it's said somewhere in the script, I think one of the cops says that it's a combination of bone, there's, there's, there's human bone in there, in, in the ground in, to the chalk that's being used. So it's a ritualized and probably, and, and ritually blessed or conjured, right, material that was used to make to make that circle but it was made with a modern implement that's how real on the ground people's magic works well for me i mean it also invokes sort of the ritualistic aspects of sports as well i mean of course there's a mm -hmm. lot of theories about the traditions with baseball but you could really say the same thing with like football american football that is to say and well i mean i'm sure mm -hmm. you, i'm not as familiar with soccer obviously growing up in the american south but i mean i'm sure that right 
circular theories around there but yeah it's uh and i think that kind of plays more into what you're saying too in a lot of cases more of the folk magic or maybe in a kind of warrior magic that plays into yeah yeah i i think of it as um i i think of it as the people's magic uh, I, I feel like folk magic is almost a pejorative in, in for some people that it's lesser in some way that it's unaware of modernity and my point is that it's actually the opposite that that the person who you go to for you know to buy voodoo in implements and candles in in new orleans has a cell phone just like you they're a regular person they're not living apart from the world and and so it's and so it is it, it's the people's magic. It's it's it modernizes with the culture. In a way, there's a relationship to chaos magic there, right? You you can you can do magic with anything. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's a very good uh, perspective on that as well. And and well, yeah, it's it, that's also very, I think, specific to um, displaced and syncretic cultures. Because they were forced to adapt. Do you want to get into Which is what... Do you want yeah, to get yeah well, that's what... Guyana is such a great example of this. A syncretic... Syncretism in any spirituality is the combining of different cultures into... And different religions specifically into one religion. Voodoo being the most well-known. Right, and you have in that case, uh, and you uh, you have Afri the African slaves, you have the, the indigenous people, and and you have sort of two different. If you have Haiti, you have a very different indigenous group than um, Louisiana, right? They're, 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 and their cultures would be different, and you have the sort of high Catholicism of French Catholicism, right, which is its own thing in many ways. And has a, a a very different flavor in in a way to Italian Catholicism or Spanish Catholicism, and, and so you have a and so what you have is the it's a product of colonialism, right? That's the forced. These religions are not go, getting together and blending because they chose to. It is a result of colonialism, and it is a result of repression. Because the Christians come in and say, you have to convert to Christianity, but you know that God you worship in Africa? They're really this saint. It's just a different name. They're really this saint. So you can be a Catholic and keep your God and worship this saint. That is an essential part of particularly voodoo and Haiti. Right? All the laws have um, corresponding saints. So uh, getting back to the sort of um, secular politics of this story, where we're talking about immigration and the journey of an immigrant group from oppressed, marginalized, ghettoized minority through organized crime to legitimacy, that is also a product and a direct and a part of modern day colonialism. And so, and in the case of Diana, a really, really interesting nexus of 
the colonialism that actually that created this country because it dates back to that same era. So it's a, um, it, it, because the difference, most, most places that we can, that I can think of that had that kind of syncretic blending usually was three different groups. It was the colonists, it was the indigenous people, and it was the slaves who were imported in, mostly from Africa. And in Guyana, because it was a British colony, you have less Catholic influence. You don't have that turn your gods into saints thing, because by the time they got there, they had already become Protestants. But what you have is is a large, not just African slaves, but large groups of indentured servants coming in from India and from China. So instead of three groups, you have five, and you have that Eastern overlay that, that um, uh, or not just overlay, but component that, uh, that those that say voodoo does not have because those people weren't there. And so into that mix, this, this African practice of Obia is, which does not have gods. It's not a religion. It doesn't have deities. It doesn't have um, an origin story like the Bible or, or any other great book. It, it has practices. And it's basically uh, shamanistic folk, um, or as I like to call it, people's magic. It's curses. It's, um, it's potions. It's luck and fate, it's protection, right? All of those things. Um, and, and because of that, right, it adapts because it, you, there's no God's belief in any particular God to accept or reject. And so it adapts. Curses, potions, healing, protection, luck, fate, that exists in every culture. So as that syncretism was happening in Guyana under duress of of colonization, you have the Obea became a way for those oppressed people to have some um, control over their lives. What is unique? And, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yes. What is unique about the Guyanan version of Obia? Because I know it appears in uh, multiple countries throughout the Caribbean, but well, uh, I'm I, not I, sure that anything is specifically unique, except that the culture in Guyana is unique in that it is for two reasons. One is that addition of Asia into the mix in the culture and in the religion. So you have. Um, you know, ideas um, that are, instead of ideas coming from three um, parts of the world, you have ideas coming from four or, you know, India and China are close to each other, but to my mind, very distinctly different cultures, so you could say four parts of the world. Um, so... 
but it, it there there is overlay to some degree with that. I think part of what's different also about Guyana is also the other thing is that in a way it stems from geography. Guyana it, it was able to keep itself its indigenous culture relatively intact, and also had because when when Columbus sailed in right and and ultimately ended up in the Caribbean. He didn't even stop at Guyana. It was so hard to get to that you had to go in over land, even though it's got a big shoreline, because you couldn't, the way it's, there was, a, there's no natural harbor, and it was actually dangerous to bring the ships in there. So he just was like, no, we're not going there. And he made a left turn and came up through, <laughs> through the islands, right? If you look at a map, um, that, was true also internally in Guyana before Columbus ever got there. There were two tribes. There was the the coastal area, um, which and and a tribe that was they were very peaceful. They mostly they were farmers. They farmed um, uh, what's it called? It's tapioca is what we call it. I forget their word for it. And it, in like sandbars on the beach, they were sort of. They were not warlike. They just sort of did their thing in the jungle. But but about, you know, 10 miles in from the coast, the jungle starts. And about 90 miles in, it's impassable. And the tribe that came down, the, so the tribe from the jungle, I guess, got tired of fighting for their lives and decided, and were also pretty hardened by that experience. And they just fought their way down through on, on the rivers. Diana is, um, it, it, it's, it, there are five, I think it's like 500 different major pieces of water in the country it's 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 the land of waters and so they they came down like of the congo if you will i guess yeah yeah it sort of feels like that but this very warlike tribe came down from out of the jungle and they were just basically were you know just looting and they got to the ocean and the arawak said hi how you doing want some tapioca (laughs) And instead of killing them, they um, hung out for a while, probably fathered some children, right? And then got in boats and kept on going, conquering things. And that tribe was called the Carib, the whole name of the Caribbean. It comes from Guyana, which isn't even technically the Caribbean, it's South America. So, but the fact that the Arawaks were just like, okay, fine, here, have some food. Yeah, we'll be friendly and didn't get conquered. The same thing happened with the, with the European colonists when they came in. They didn't enslave them. They treated them like a nation. I'm not sure how often that happened in other places. Certainly didn't happen here. And I mean, some lip service to it here, but ultimately it did not happen here. And, you know, and there were all of these stories about Guyana. That was where, you know, one of the places where they thought where they thought El Dorado was the lost city of gold. There were expeditions by Europeans into the Guyanese jungle. And, and, you know, I've read, I read several, um, 
pieces of speculation that said that the whole, you know, Lost City of Gold thing was just something that the smart indigenous people made up because they knew that if the Europeans went into the jungle, that a leopard would eat them. Which is what happened, which is what happened in one of the most famous stories about that. And uh, so, so the history of Guyana is interesting because it became pivotal because its location, once they figured out how to build a harbor, I guess, it became really pivotal because of its location. It's a really important place strategically, militaristically. And uh, so it changed hands a lot. It changed hands from the French to the Dutch to the British round and round a couple of times. At one point, the Dutch traded New Amsterdam, Manhattan, along with a bunch of other land for Guyana to the British. After they bought it for what was it, what, 24 pieces of shells or something like that, the folktale, the American folktale about buying it from the Native Americans. So the connection back to New York City is very interesting as well. So it sort of made, yeah, we're gonna we're, we're gonna write about Guyana because it's it's almost another full circle, just like the Kurosawa thing start story inspiration actually started in New York. Yeah, it's a New York story. No, that is. Definitely. And there were things like that that would keep happening throughout the the writing and research of this of this script that were really interesting that way. So Sir Walter Riley had quite a unique relationship yeah. with Guyana. Do you want to break that down for us a bit? Oh yeah, it's a, that's a fun story. I mean, that's that's a fun story. If anybody ever wanted to make an epic program about this, I mean, so Sir Walter Raleigh it was sort of considered the British Columbus. He was a little later than Columbus. So Columbus came in that 1492 journey that we all learn about in grade school, right? He he sort of noted that Guyana was there, but didn't stop because there was no place to park, basically. And then other parts of South America were colonized. You know, the, they, the Europeans were fighting over who got to colonize it, right? So you had the French and the Dutch and the British and the Spanish. And the only way you, you could get into Guyana was overland, and it was grueling. So about 100 years later, Sir Walter Raleigh, is um, the darling of Queen Elizabeth's court. He's the great explorer. Rumors, room, long rumored, I don't know, I'm not an expert on Elizabeth I, but suppose there, it was, he was her boyfriend, was in, in modern parlance, is the, um, is, 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 I mean, there have been, you know, full on historical romances written postulating that relationship and um and he was kind of a celebrity and so he initially came once and he was told all these stories about el dorado and the riches there and all of that and you know the only way to go up there you're going up um the the Essequibo River, right, and into the jungle and you have crocodiles and you have leopards and jaguars i assume because they're 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 native to that area and it you know you're good there's a really good chance you're gonna get eaten if you go in there 
And so that was the idea. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> these people are greedy. We'll send them in there and they won't bother us anymore. And a lot of people fell for it, including Sir Walter Raleigh. But, but he had to cl- go in there over land and he had to raise – and he ran out of money. So he goes back to um, England and it has all of these stories about his travels. And he writes a book called The Discovery of the Large, Rich, and Beautiful Empire of Guyana. Most of it is it's science fiction. Okay, it's fantasy. It's talking about um, – it's, uh, you know, the, the, like the uh, – like, men with, you know, no head, uh, you know, all of those weird things that you would see in, you know, some weird monk's doodle in a, in a, um, in, a in an illuminated manuscript, that kind, you know, I mean, he was really channeling some very weird stuff in this. Um, and it's a very, and it, but it was a huge bestseller. It made him even more of a celebrity in Europe. Not only was he, most people thought, the lover of the Virgin Queen, right? But he was this great explorer who had discovered this land with all these magical creatures and the wealth and everybody, all of the the um, bored aristocracy now wanted to go to Guyana and find El Dorado, which was great for Raleigh because he needed money to go back there. So he gets back there a second time and his best friend is his right-hand man and he has his son who's a teenager basically. Um, and, and they go in and, and they fight with the Spanish. They get into a big battle with the Spanish and then they go up the river and Raleigh, Sir Walter Raleigh has been told whatever you do, by this time King James has come in and he doesn't, like Sir Walter Raleigh, the way Elizabeth did. And um, so he's been told, whatever you do, we have a treaty with the Spanish, do not get into it with the Spanish. Well, Raleigh hated, they were his enemies, and he didn't care, and he didn't obey, and he got into a big fight with the Spanish where where people, important people were killed, and then he had to leave his um his best friend, first officer, and his son and a crew there, and they were going to go upriver and look for all the city of gold. And he had, and he went back, I think, needing more money, and he got thrown in prison by King James for fourteen years because he had what the Spanish wanted him executed, and they decided, well, we'll just. And then he eventually gets out again, goes back to Guyana, finds out that his son has been, I believe it was eaten by a leopard, and all of his men have been killed. And he gets into this huge fight with his best friend where they yell at each other all night long, everybody can hear it, and at the end of that night, his best friend shoots himself in the head how the mighty have fallen, right? <laughs> so eventually, and then Sir Raleigh gets into, I might be getting the order of these a little bit wrong. I don't remember which happened first, but he gets into another big battle with the Spanish. And this time when he, and then he has to go back to England. And this time King James has him executed because the Spanish insist on it, because that's the only reason, way that they won't go to war. So, so far, Guyana doing really well. Europeans, not so good. 
it's also interesting because there's a lot of um speculation about walter riley on uh, several levels he was quite a mysterious uh figure yeah uh he was from uh dorset and then he later uh, became i believe the lord of cornwall and uh, both of those uh, regions of the uk have been associated with uh uh, magical traditions, let us just say, for quite some time. He was a sponsor of the Lost Colony of Roanoke as well, which I thought was really... That's interesting. Yes, no, it is, it is, isn't it? And um, naturally, he was also suspected of being uh, one of the actual authors of the uh, the plays of William Shakespeare. Uh, I remember hearing that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um well it was all you know that if you back in England right he both he and Shakespeare were probably I mean he was a hot young man on the scene as was Shakespeare if you think about it in modern terms right he was he was famous he was a celebrity he had the ear of the queen if not other parts of her body and and and, and he was cocky right he was you know very very cocky and then he writes this huge best-selling fantasy book, which is kind of like you know, today he'd maybe direct a Marvel movie or something. Yeah, that's. I mean, he was right. a big deal. He was a big deal, and um, and so he's very, um, it, it, you know, he, it's there's a lot of it's a very interesting history. There are the intrigues of the court, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, part of my thesis in talking about Walter Raleigh and in some of this, uh, the other things that even though Guyana was conquered, it, it never really was subsumed culturally the way other places were, including the United States. And, um, and so you have, and the British actually, you know, they left, right? There is it, the country was, I mean, they didn't leave right away, but the um, it it was colonized and it was used, and you have all of these other cultures, large numbers of people being brought in, which completely changed the nature of the place. But at the same time, it didn't become particularly European. The more modern history is very much um, one of the extension of colonialism, and you know the idea the, uh, into you know the CIA meddling in governments and things like that. Before we get into that, real quick, could you uh, break down some of the uh, speculation about a possible relation between uh, Guyana and the Salem witch trials? Well, there's not much actually known about it. There's because really with the Salem witch trials, we only, we don't there really isn't that, you know, it's only a couple of different accounts or one in particular. And so most of what we think we know about Salem are things that creative writers extrapolated from that. What we do know is that Tituba, the um slave girl who um, is often said to be African may indeed have been from Guyana. Uh, and there, but there's not a lot of information about that, but if she was from Guyana, she was of course much um, closer to in, in culturally to being African than someone from Guyana would be today. 
And so her knowledge of Obia ritual, which is what it would have been, the, the kind of magic she was accused of both practicing and teaching to the other women, would have been closer to African Obia. This was way before um, the um, Indian and Chinese um, indentured servants, for instance, were brought over there. So it would be more, um, the actual culture would be more, and, and there also is some some discussion that she was born in Africa. So her life may have been, she was born in Africa, she was enslaved, she was brought to Guyana, and then she was brought to Salem. That's one version. Um, if she wasn't born in Africa, she was probably first generation born in, in Guyana to African parents, if, if she was from Guyana at all. And so um, there's a connection, but, you know, in the concept that Obia is a practice that is not really that culturally connected specifically, it comes initially from Africa, but it adapts to whatever culture it's part of in many ways because it is practice rather than um, dogma. Um, Then, you know, then yes, she brought that there that in she also then there are some people say that she also might have been native american too though that seems less likely to me at least that name is not a native american name as far as i know well it's fascinating in light of uh what you were talking about earlier as well about high and low magic uh in relation to the massachusetts bay colony because there were Mm -hmm. uh, these notorious persecutions the salem witch trial of course i think it was thomas Mm -hmm. burton's you know marymount uh colony but then conversely you had figures like john winthrop i believe one of the ancestors of cotton mathers who were practicing alchemists so uh, mm-hmm. You know, while the elite were kind of going about doing their own sort of high magic, uh, largely unmolested, uh, you had a lot of these, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, rather rash uh, bouts of um, just absolute persecution breaking out amongst mm-hmm. the plebeians and uh, the uh, indentured serving class, the slave classes, a lot of that type of thing. Well, I think it, I think it is very much a class class issue. Um, they they were not you know you were you also had you know masons and lots of European high magic white people's magic essentially um, that was going on in certain circles back at that in, in those times and they weren't persecuted it, 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 it was the people with brown skin who were being persecuted for practicing um, uh, people's magic, for practicing magic that, that it does not have, that is not a question of high ritual, that does not have um, an intermediary where you are directly, effect- directly casting the spell yourself as opposed to going to a priest in confession and having them absolve you and give you, um, rit- give you rituals to do to cleanse your soul, right? Um, and, but but you need the priest to do that. In, in 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 you don't need that in these cultures. The Obia man or woman would be someone who was like, as in any culture, a seer, someone who has the a deeper ability to connect with those those energies. And so while you would do some of you would do things on a daily basis on your own, when you needed special help, you would go 
to the, go to the expert, go to the person who has greater skills than you do. Real quick, I remember when I was reading up on this um, that Obia, it's actually illegal to practice it in quite a few nations, if I recall. Um, I believe it was not, it was finally made not illegal in Guyana, if I recall correctly, in 2018. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, I don't think that those laws have been enforced particularly in modern times, but. Technically, they're still on the, some of them. They're still on the books. Yes, it's terrifying. Are you kidding? I mean, the colonists don't want that, and, and that gets back to is a, you know, first of all, it's all of these things are inherently political. If people are gathering in secret to cast a spell, they might might also talk about how they want to overthrow the oppressor. You know, or they might cast a spell on you. And, uh, you know, there's one school of thought, um, a secularist school of thought, which is that curses aren't real. And it's, uh, you know, the only problem with a curse is if you believe you're cursed. Or curses are real, but they don't manifest, as with most magic, in a direct line. So someone curses you, and if someone curses you, it's not like your hair falls out overnight. It's that your life goes sour, basically. And we can, you know, one can choose to attribute that sourness to a curse or not. And, and so, but even if you choose to not attribute it to that, are you really sure? And I think everyone has that nagging question. Oh, absolutely. And that's in many ways what happens in getting back to the television show that sparked this conversation. That's what that in the frame of there's the frame of this is a crime story about a kidnapping gone bad and all the secrets it reveals. Or there's the frame of this is about a curse that that uh, uh, this is about a curse that comes home to roost 20 years later. And in trying to stop that from happening, as often happens with with magical rituals, the effect of the ritual isn't quite what you intended it to be, and it has a much broader ripple effect. Stretched out over hill and dale, hands stretched out. I parted the veil like it was nothing at all, like it was nothing at all. Stepped onto the shore, crossed the river at last. Made my way around through the shadow cab Where the nighttime meets the dark Where the arrow hits the mark 
like it was nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Keep your shirt on, baby Hang on to your shoes We're striking distance Of some mystic kind of blue And take a chance on a trance Baby, that's how we do Hold it up to the wind And let it send it home to you Like it was nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Nothing at all Like it was nothing at all Time. 
The sea grass tears of salt and sand And poets flow right Oh Lord, hear this prayer Caught up the wind Send it round the world And bring it back to me again Let the wind dry the tears From the sands of time Blow it over my heart and polish it fine. Let the wind dry the tears from the sands of time. Blow it over my heart and give it a shine. Like it was nothing at all. Like it was nothing at all. Getting into modern times, uh, possibly no organization has had quite uh, the special relationship with Guyana as the CIA. Uh, do you mm -hmm. want to give us a few of the highlights of that? Well, I mean, the two big ones are um, JFK era, in between Bay of Pigs and his assassination. Um, they were very afraid that Guyana had over the in the 20th century become um radical because it was not a british colony anymore it was it was uh, on its way to becoming independent it was not a colony anymore um i forget the exact legal structure but it would they had their own politicians their own elections and they were increasingly socialist and communist and they were afraid it was going to be the next cuba and so after the gay of bay of pigs and up to right before the assassination, like October 63, they overthrew the CIA organized or orchestrated a coup of um, Chedi Jadan, the elected socialist, I guess he would call him, I'm not sure if he called himself that, but socialist um, uh, president, I guess, of Guyana. And it was a big operation. And JFK was really into it. He did not want another Bay of Pigs. And so he was actually very gung-ho about it. And um, there are whispers that curses were put on him and that the, the assassination was a result of such. I can't find any direct citation of that, just people in some of the things I read talking about it as rumors. Uh, at the time, but it's it's interesting to imagine, right? Um, and then theoretically, the CIA left, but they didn't. It's in the, for the same reason that it was an, an important strategic place geographically um, in the colon in the era of colonists and boats. It was very much an important uh, place, even more so if you're talking about Cuba, for instance, and, and other things that are happening in that area at the time. And they left people there. And there, was, there were 
um, most people believe ongoing operations there. There's not a lot of documentation, but it's uh, unlikely that it's uh, that that there were not. They were launching things from there, even if they weren't doing things specifically in the country, and they were keeping their eye on things. And then we get to um, Jim Jones and the People's Temple, which is how most people know about Guyana. Certainly the first time I ever heard of it was in that context. And two things to know about Jones. One, Jones coming from Northern California, right, and all of that area – same area as um, he was connected to Vacaville, which which uh, the prison where both Charles Manson and Sam Q from the Symbionese, Symbionese Liberation Army were both held and both claimed to have been put through probably MKUltra, if not some other acronym, right, um, research as prisoners there. There's a whole long school of thought about this whole that that I first heard about reading May Russell, the late great May Russell, um, radical left conspiracy theorist from Northern California, concurrent who lived in that area and was from that area at the time, so and had lots and lots of sources. Um, I remember reading her account of everything that happened with the SLA um, into the first time I read it into the wee hours of the morning and being as terrified as any horror movie. It was absolutely chilling. And the idea that Jones was taught, um, he was an operative. He, what he did with the people's temple was a clear um, op, right? And that, and that there are, many different reasons for it potentially and that he went off the rails right and became and became a cult leader but he started as it was particularly involved with the black community and the black community in northern california where the panthers were very very strong so part of that it was to break up that community and also, as a C- if he was trained by the CIA and and he was sort of a rogue op that then went to Guyana, where there are where there are where there has been CIA involvement and are, are still CIA operatives around. Then you have Leo Ryan coming into the story, Representative Leo Ryan, who represented uh, um, Patty Hearst's family's district in Northern California and decided to look into the CIA in part because of some of the things that came out after the Patty Hearst incident about what was going on there. And he was investigating the CIA and he was getting traction. And there is, and there, there is reason to believe that his that he was killed as a, and that by the CIA or by operatives. His family did. His five children sued the CIA. The only time that's ever happened. They did not win, but it was a big, big lawsuit at the time. They they thought that they could prove it. I mean, it got to court. So 
all of this to say that you venture into Guyana um, and, um, uh, you know, as a European at your peril, there's, a, you know, in terms of curses, possibly. Um, did not work out well for any of those people. Now, it's also, um, in regards to Jones, interesting to note that uh, he had known uh, Dan Mitrioni, I believe as he was a teenager in his early 20s. Of course, Mitrioni uh, became quite infamous after he was uh, executed and tortured in uh, Uganda uh, around 72, but he had been a part of uh, the Office of Public Safety. Uh, charming agency, which I believe it had grown out of the uh, U.S. Uh, agency for International Development, and this was part of the kind of broader, uh, effectively international Phoenix program that was sort of rolled out uh, after a lot of the experimentation had been done in Vietnam. I mean, of course, uh, what I'm getting at with that is a big part of Phoenix in Vietnam was actually run through USAID, uh, one of the major visionaries, in fact, behind it, John Paul Vance, a um, former U.S. Army colonel, had actually directed much of it uh, uh, through USAID. So Mitrioni was a guy who had been instrumental in effectively bringing these so-called pacification programs to Central and uh, South America during this era. And I think in that context, especially, it's really interesting to see that he had this early relationship with Jones in light of his later activities, both in the United States and later in Guyana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a, you know, it's interesting. I'm, um, trying to find the, the uh, find this book there was a man i met he's a journalist his name is brad schreiber and he wrote a book about patty hearst in the sla and um he a uh, wonderful researcher's story he was researching this and there was a newspaper man i can't remember his name right now from the san francisco area who had been on that case forever right for decades and had basically retired, but he had all of this contemporaneous research from the time it happened in his garage. And Brad made contact with him, and the guy was, you know, um, near the end of his life, I assume. And he sold it. He, Brad bought the um, that research from him and attribute, and then used that as a launching point um, to. Uh, and so it's uh, you know it's interesting. I'm trying to find the book on Amazon, and I can't because I can't remember the name of it, and it doesn't seem to be here, which is really weird because I bought it from them. Um, <laughs> but he, there were two things that came out of that research that were fascinating. One is that Patty Hearst, the story was not what we were told. She had been visiting Saint Hugh in prison at Vacaville using her roommate's ID they were involved in a relationship and the, and this research had proof of that and and that what happened was more they were you know she was in other words she was already radicalized before she got kidnapped what happened is that they he wanted to do the kidnap they 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 wanted to do the kidnapping and she probably balked and decided she didn't really want to do that and um, 
there it is. Revolutions end. The Patty Hearst kidnapping, mind control, and the secret history of Donald DeFries and the F- S- and the SLA by Brad Schreiber. If anyone's interested, um, and so it, it really it's a it's a really interesting book. It was just published a few years ago and uh, gets into a lot of the things that we're talking about. Um, and I was already very well researched in this subject, and he definitely had things that I had never seen or heard of, which I think he got from that really interesting um, transition from um, one generation of researchers to another, which is a story that I like, right? That, you know, we hand it, we hand down the work as we go. And the other thing, and this is something that I don't think is in the book, though I think Brad was saying he was going to write something for the paperback edition because the book was already out when he found this out. Right before Leo Ryan went down to Guyana and was assassinated, he met with Jimmy Carter and asked him to pardon Patty Hearst, on the basis of, uh, of the basis being that the CIA, that the whole thing was a CIA op and that she was a victim of that. And within a couple of weeks, he's assassinated in a way that very possibly could be by the CIA. And he was heading up this committee, this congressional committee that was investigating the CIA like it never had been investigated and asking a lot of difficult questions and very possibly was going to use all those things that happened in his district, right, in Northern California as a lever in those investigations. Like another interesting component of what was going on in uh, the San Francisco area that's never really mentioned as well during this time is uh, the zebra killings, uh, which were mm-hmm. happening in Oakland. And I actually was able to confirm that um, Jim Jones's People's Temple had actually had interaction with the uh, the two Nation of Islam um, mm-hmm. locations uh, that were supposedly linked to the Zebraland murders. But there's a lot about that that's very dubious on so many levels. Um, yeah, there the was a lot of stuff there. going on in, in, uh, in Northern California in that era and I and a lot of it seems to flow in one way or another from all of the reported experiment MK Ultra possibly CIA experimentation that was going on up there with on people whether it's you know dosing people with acid secretly or experimenting on prisoners at Vacaville or helping cult leaders get a foothold in the black community so you disperse radicalism so i wouldn't be surprised i mean the the zebra murders were were based in the black community i i really do think that the black community particularly you know based out of oakland in that area where the panthers were so strong was they were terrified they're absolutely terrified of what would happen if that community got stronger it, there, there was a lot of, uh, I, I, they were bro- it was broken, or attempted broke to be broken, but in any number of ways. So I could absolutely see the zebra murders being part of that mentality in whatever way it could be. It was implemented. Absolutely. 
And I mean, that's kind of the, you know, in the uh, terms of the book that I'm just finishing up now, I mean, this is sort of the, uh, well, for me, I see this as sort of broadly speaking, more part of a uh, essentially ongoing counterinsurgency program that the uh, U.S. security services have been running for decades now. I mean, after a lot of experimentation was done in the developing world in places like the Philippines and Vietnam, a lot in mm -hmm. Latin America, I mean, much of this was brought home and a lot of this stuff, I mean, the behavioral modification was very much a part of the, you know, component of these counterinsurgency programs. And yeah. it wasn't also just the absolutely, or, yeah. you know, artichoke kind of stuff, too. I mean, another, I think, aspect of this that nobody really gets is that it was also tied in with the work that ARPA was doing, frankly, with mm -hmm. the Internet and with, you know, data mining, with personality profiles, predictive modeling. All this stuff was going on in the 60s, and it was actually being a oh, yeah. counterinsurgency efforts in Vietnam. I mean, they had computers mm -hmm. you know in saigon that were being used to uh harvest the data that was being gathered by censuses that were uh, being in turn used to make uh, modeling on so absolutely I mean, and i would i would assume that they were doing the same thing with countries that are much closer to us right i yeah. mean diana is physically it's a lot easier to get here than yeah. it is from vietnam in terms of being a direct danger to us well, the big component in all that, too, is Edward Lansdale, because you got to remember, he was basically mm -hmm. running all the stuff with Agile and at the same time, which was the, yep. the ARPA program, what I'm talking about. And then at the same time, mm -hmm. he was actually touring all of these Latin American countries uh, during the early 60s, during the Kennedy years, establishing ties with the militaries there. See, this is like another big mm -hmm. thing is we bring all of the um, the officers corps, the elite soldiers and so forth from these countries. We train them at the School of the Americas, and it's a way for us to cultivate effectively the elite military forces, mm -hmm. and the upper echelon officers, and also teach them all of these torture techniques and so forth. So, you know, this well, is and 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 create and make them ours. Yes, exactly. As well. I mean, you know, you get control of the nation's military, you got it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you train them right, right being from the point, your point of view, of course, if you train them right, they will not turn that training on you. Though in some cases that probably has happened. But, you know, the danger in training elite military in your methods is that they can use your methods on you if, if you're not careful. So you don't just have to train them, you have to co-opt them in some way, right? Yeah, which is exactly why the sort of artichoke stuff, the MK Ultra stuff mm -hmm. is important in a lot of this, which people don't get, but um, yeah, yes, it is yeah. quite fast. Uh, hearts, and, hearts and minds, right? Like our friend Bert knew, hearts <laughs> and minds. Absolutely. Well, do you want to get into the all of the geopolitical intrigues and how they influenced Full Circle? Well, they didn't really, to be honest. I mean, they did to some degree um, in that I read about them, I talked to Ed about them, but the story is much closer to the ground in Full Circle. It, 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 they influenced Full Circle in the concept of what only in the in this sort of broader political concept right of when you use a country that way what happens to the people of that country and 
how do the, these are people who they're coming here and sending money home, right? They're coming here and this is, you know, a typical third world um, immigrant situation, right? There, there's so much poverty there. They can't advance. They can't live a good life where they are. They can't take care of their families. So they come here to earn money to send and earn money and send money home. Um, and characters in full circle absolutely do that, which is absolutely a big part of that immigrant culture. And they don't, they're not here because they think they prefer being here to being at home. They're here because they, they cannot have a life where they come from. And that is a direct result of those, that geopolitics of that of that work in in that it whatever games are being played at the higher levels what happens on the ground is that the culture doesn't grow economically so the and the people who live there are more and more oppressed i think now it's also very much uh, the the environmental um collapse will absolutely hurt the hurt places like that more initially than it hurts us because they have fewer resources look at what happened in haiti over the last decade how decimated that country has been by by natural disaster and and how much they don't have in infrastructure to be able to deal with it that's a direct result of those of those political choices. So it plays into it really only in that way. How about the mystical and magical traditions then? You know, the the curse and the idea of the cur- the belief in the curse. And full circle was re- was mu- there was much more of it. Um, at various times, and that often happens when you write something this sprawling, is that you end up having to pare it back because of um, money, mostly, but also efficiency of storytelling. Right? You you may not. It, it's a more. It's a better story in many ways the way we have it now. But we lost a lot of wonderful material, and um, part of it was uh, an expansion of the inner lives of the uh, of the people that that we know in this story and that enabled us to bring in um for instance we had uh there's a character um the the american um cop played by zazie beats um is trying to turn um one of the young guyanese teenagers who who have been brought over to um kind of as a, you know indentured servants in a way right their passport is taken from them they have to, you know it's a, a, a typical human trafficking paradigm right you will take your passport and then when you've earned enough money to pay us back there uh, then you can have your passport back and um that as he gets more and more in extremis as this story goes on, he starts to see her in, in his mind as if she were a jumbie. He sees her as a demon. And we were sort of exploring that dynamic that he's sort of almost hallucinating 
and is kind of losing it and having, you know, and are, you know, discussions of, you know, do you, why do you believe in that shit? Right. And some of the, uh, there were other things that we brought in that came from the culture that way that made it that, that we would have done. There was originally, and I can talk about this because actually um, Steven Soderbergh mentioned it in an interview, so I'm not breaking any um, NDAs. <laughs> there was a whole other um, w experimental version of this that was, um, that we were going to have, that was going to be online where we were um, following inside the, more of the inner lives of the characters that we were going to shoot concurrently. And that would have been a lot of fun and um, to do. And unfortunately, we just did not have the time or the money to do it. But but we did get through it as all the way through writing the script the scripted version of it, and there was a lot more of this kind of thing. I think that so what we ended up with was so much more streamlined that most of that went away. The curse is in there, and the whole question of do you believe in this curse? Do you even have to believe in it? Because it's pretty really everyone involved in this has their lives lives upended, if not ended by the fallout of this ritual of this attempt to lift this curse you could say that it's there the whole time it's always there it's in everything but in terms of specifics about guyana not so much in other words it's it's there it's prominent as that particular ritual but beyond that there's not much discussion of it or use of it beyond that do you have any uh closing thoughts here on the show before we sign off i i think that not not specifically i'm very proud of it um i, I and i'm proud to have been a part of it and to have had the opportunity to work on not one but three projects with ed and steven um that's a big deal and that the fact that i was able to have this kind of input and influence into into this in that um neither of them were setting out to write something that was synchromystical or supernatural um but my philosophy is that everything has that those aspects and that sense of the uncanny that sense of the weird you know, um, I always tease Ed because weird is one of his favorite words. He he sprinkles it into uh, to conversation, into scripts, uh, uh, that he has a sense of the uncanny, right, in his nature. And his work often includes that, but he doesn't think of himself as a person who believes in those kinds of things. You know, so I, just in that, I've almost it's there. Sometimes he has almost um, like an HP Lovecraft kind of quality in a sense from some of the ways you've described and more in the, like you're saying, he has this very materialistic worldview, even though he's done so many amazing projects that do resonate. I would call it rationalist rather than materialist. Yes. Uh, you know, just, you know, in that he's, he's, um, you know, from a political point of view, I would not call him a materialist at all. 
let's put it that way. But rationalist, oh, yeah, in yeah. other words, you you don't see things in terms of um, the spiritual, in terms of the magical, in terms of the idea of the all, what uh, the synchromystical. Um, but we all have a sense of the uncanny. That's why Lovecraft endures, right? He's not that great a writer. He didn't endure because he's a great literary figure. He endures because he, more than anyone else, has a handle on that sense, that sensibility, which is something we that we all know exists in the world and we don't understand and we don't quite want to face. I couldn't and so, yeah. not being the best writer, <laughs> but incredible vision. Yeah, well, it's just, it's, yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, it's just as a, as someone who is a professional writer, who is a, a wordsmith, who prides myself on having um, a sense of literary style, um, I don't really, you know, I, I mean, I thought that back when I was a teenager, when I was first reading Lovecraft, but yet I couldn't put it down. And so I think that, you know, there's, there's a sense of the weird coming in, in if you, if you attune to it, it's everywhere, of course, which is what Lovecraft knew. And it's a very little discussed aspect of human nature. Well, I think inevitably, too, when you engage in the arts in any form, I mean, you kind of are drawn into it, whether you want to be or not, uh, whether you perceive it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what that's in a way, that's what they talk about the uncanny valley in terms of, you know, effects, right? Uh, that that there's a certain place where once when we've started to synthesize things with computers, um, where we just, it, it's not right, right? It doesn't, we know just in our gut, right? There's something off. And I think that that's true for all art is a form of synthesis, right? All art is a form of represent, at least dramatic arts, right? Are a representation of human behavior on some level. And so if the thing that creates what they call the uncanny valley, right, is a sense of things not being quite real, almost too real to be real, almost, isn't that, couldn't you say that there's an aspect of that to any art, because any art of that form, because it's all representing human behavior, but it's not real. It's a fiction. It's a performance. It's a play. It's a movie, movie or a television show. It is not real. Uncanniness is inherent to all dramatic arts. Well, if Plato is to be believed, I mean, essentially, it's a mimic of how we perceive reality. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, these uh, kind of idealized forms rather than how it actually exists. True. Yes, exactly. And and I think that that's true. It's also um, perception is not um, absolute. That, that what I perceive, what I see, uh, we think that we are perceiving and seeing the same thing, but are we? There's always differences. It shows up in um, memory, right? The the whole idea that our that we have that our memories are accurate—they're not. 
we immediately start to um, manipulate our own memories. And the more extreme a situation, possibly the more manipulated that memory becomes over the course of a life. But yet we all believe that our memories are perfect and accurate. Well, most of us do. But it's just simply not true, which is why, you know, if you're talking about, you know, police and investigation, what somebody says um, right after they've seen something, they've witnessed something, could be very different than what they might remember a month or two months or a year later. Especially if there's any amount of stress, which brings the question of brain chemistry and its effect on memory into the into the equation. Well, if my recent experiences at the uh, Captive Nations Summit are any indication, we're about to see a full-blown war effort applied to collective memory and quote-unquote memory politics as well. But I mean... Oh, well, that's already happened. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that. I mean, arguably, <laughs> this has already been going you know, on for centuries now. I mean, yeah. The history, yeah. his story thing, you know. Right. It's just... You right. Know, well, I mean, yeah, isn't that what you know? Aquino was talking about in Mind Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, who controls the past or the narrative more accurately of the past? Mm -hmm. I think has a good handle on the future. Right, and that is, of course, powerful. Right, that's who makes history. Who decides what history is? Who controls the version of the past? Versions of the past, which is why so many people are so terrified of what might ha happen with AI and deep fakes and things like that. Um, because we're already in this new mo new modern or postmodern maybe era are um, we're so influenced by what we see on a screen that to many people that's more real than real life, and it's so easy to manipulate, mm -hmm. and that's a form of magic as well. Oh, it totally is. Well, it has been a fascinating discussion, and it's always a pleasure to have you on here. And yes, at some point we should uh, do a May Brussels show. I think that would be quite. That would be that would be cool. That would be cool. I was, you know, in many ways, she was my gateway drug into research and um, deep state and things like that. I had read some things before that, but I was just captivated by her writing and also. Her story, you know, she was an heiress. She was the, I think it was Imagnon, which was a really, really high-end San Francisco Society Department store, that her father owned it. So she was ruling class. And she had all kinds of entree because of that, that got her... Because when she was doing this kind of thing, there was no internet, right? She had this, you know, my understanding was that she just had this home full of boxes and papers and, you know, just was, it was, it was, I mean, by the end of her life, she, that's, you know, that, that once her children were grown, that was her life. And she was just intense about it. And yeah, I mean, um, Mae Brussel and, and Paul Krasner, who was her publisher, who published The Realist, who we were talking about offline earlier, who was um, a friend of mine decades ago, and um, his role in exposing a lot of these things. It's, it's an interesting story. Oh, absolutely. Well, 
We will certainly make a date of it then. It sounds like it will be a uh, a quite a story to unfold. Yes, absolutely. A little a little bit of um, conspiracy, um, para para politics history from deep in the heart of the '60s political movements, which is a lot of people don't uh, don't know how close those connections are. So. Yeah. Could be very interesting. No, it is a fascinating topic. Well, it has uh, been a pleasure having you on. And again, Full Circle is currently on HBO Max. Uh, this one will probably be up when there's a few episodes left still to air. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, streaming era, it's not going anywhere, at least for a while, until they need another tax write off. It'll be up for a while. So if you don't catch it first run. But um, worth watching because for also for the absolutely the huge and fabulous cast made up of. I just want to give a shout out to since we talked about Guyana a lot, all the Guyanese actors in it, um, and, um, who are just. I mean, we all know the big names, but the majority of the cast are people who um, are, are young. Actors from who are, if not directly from Guyana, at least from that part of the world, and they are just wonderful, just wonderful. And um, as you know, and and there are some real revelations in with those people, and we were lucky to have them. Yeah, it's a uh, it is a compelling show on so many levels. Well, so. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. My people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Screaming with me Scream Geronimo Castle wall, the Migra can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall, the greatest walls all down the
realize that Vato about a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it, don't need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money, when we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 